Welcome to episode three of the flagship podcast of Fansided's Call to the Pen. You can find this podcast as well as all the great content from our contributors put out at calltothepen.com. I am your host and Fansided contributor, Jonathan Playtech. You can follow me on Twitter at John's Voices. That, that is at at J-O-N-S Voices, John's Voices. As I always do whenever we meet, I hope to make this an enjoyable and fun experience. New episodes scheduled for Mondays and Wednesdays, weather permitting. We have a lot to get to today, Monday, August 7th. We will be getting to the Cubs losing four out of their last five, with Sunday's loss being directly at the feet of manager Joe Madden. We're going to talk about the flaws, the inherent apparent, overt flaws of manager Joe Madden, and yes, he has a bunch of them, and they were put on display on Sunday as the Cubs fell to the Nationals. We're also going to talk about what is hot and happening at calltothepen.com, including the possibility of a post-deadline Justin Verlander deal. Who's interested in Justin Verlander and who is an interesting enough trade partner that Verlander would up and wave his no-trade clause, as well as a move that could put the Brewers over the top in the NL Central. With the Cubs perhaps surging when Joe Madden isn't losing them games, it might behoove the Brewers to try anything and everything they can to get back atop the NL Central. But first, we have a scoreboard. 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 Hey, Joaquin, I'm out here with Apollos Hester, wide receiver for the Patriots. You guys had one heck of a game tonight. Were you guys able to do to come back and win this thing? All right, well, at first we started slow. We started real slow. And, you know, that's all right. That's okay because sometimes in life you're going to start slow. We're going to start slow, but we're always, always going to finish fast. No matter what the score was, we're going to finish hard. We're going to finish fast. And it's, it's an awesome feeling. It's an awesome feeling when you truly believe that you're going to be successful. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the scoreboard, you're going to be successful. On this scoreboard, the Rays dispatched the Brewers in Tampa 2-1 on Sunday. They are now only five and a half games back of the divisional lead and a half game back of the second wildcard spot currently held by the Kansas City Royals. As for the Brewers, they held their position with the Cubs losing on Sunday. They are just a half game back of the divisional lead. The Yankees clobbered the Indians in Cleveland 8-1. Aaron Judge, all rise, hit his 35th home run on the season. He is currently leading the AL in big flies and is only one homer back of Miami slugger Giancarlo Stanton. The Cardinals scored 13 runs on their way to a rout of the Reds in Cincinnati, 13-4. Homer Bailey went three and a third, giving up 10 hits, four walks, and 10 runs while striking out three. The Cards are still just three and a half game backs of back of the Cubs in the tightly packed NL Central. The White Sox lost to the Red Sox in Boston 6-3. The Pale Hoes are riding a six-game losing streak and are 2-8 and eight in their last 10. They are owners of the second worst record in baseball. We did it! We did it! Number two overall pick. Here we come. Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> While the Red Sox were able to maintain their three-game lead of the NL East over the Yankees, the Orioles scored 12 runs in the Tigers' three. Both teams combined for 31 hits. Six of them were home runs. The Marlins beat the Braves 4-1 to in Atlanta. Marcelo Zuna and my favorite Pokemon, JT Real Muto, both homered for the fish. The Pirates needed extras to beat the Padres in a walk-off fashion in Pittsburgh 5-4. to Sean Rodriguez played the extra innings hero with a no-doubt walk-off home run. The Twins beat the Rangers 6-5 to in Minnesota. Minnesota is six games back of the AL Central lead, having to leapfrog both the Royals and the Indians, but are only three and a half games back of the second wildcard spot in the American League. The Astros scored four in the bottom of the ninth to walk off winners against the Blue Jays, 7-6. More on the Astros later in this podcast. The Royals made it close at home against the Mariners with a two-run eighth inning, but it wasn't enough as they fell 8-7 to seven in the game of a dub- first game of a double dip at Kauffman Stadium. In the nightcap, the Royals were victorious 9-1. to one. Splitting the doubleheader saw KC gain a half game on the Indians in the, in the divisional race. They are currently the holders of the AL's, the AL's second wildcard spot. The Nationals beat the Cubs 9-4 to four in Wrigley on Sunday, but the game was a lot closer than the final score suggests. The Cubs actually had a multi-run lead until the 7th and 8th innings when another Cubs bullpen implosion across two innings surrendered the lead, headlined by Carl Edwards Jr. entering the game in the 8th with a man on and one out, proceeding to give up a double, an intentional walk, a hit-by-pitch, and then a grand slam to Nats catcher Matt Wieters. We'll talk more about that later on. The Phillies just can't stop not winning. They beat the Rockies at Coors Field 3-2. The Athletics beat the Angels in a barn burner 11-10. Both teams combined for 30 hits in that one. The Giants beat the D-backs 6-3 in San Francisco, and the Dodgers just handled the Mets 8-0 on the strength of not only Justin Turner and Cody Bellinger home runs, but also Hyunjin Ryu going seven innings, giving up one hit and striking out eight. The win improves the Dodgers' record to 79-32 with a 7-12 winning percentage, .712. That's a pace to win 115 games. That's what happened in MLB action yesterday, and this has been your scoreboard on the Call to the Pen podcast. All right, now uh, I want to get back to that Cubs game yesterday. I watched it. I watched the implosion happen live in color on my television, and I have got to say that Joe Madden gets a pass for a lot of things. There are Joe Madden is revered as one of the great baseball minds in baseball. He is lauded as one of the greatest managers in baseball right now. Like if you were to, to rank managers number one overall, you know, your top three would probably be a mix, depending on whom you asked, would probably be a mix between Terry Francona, Dave Roberts, and Joe Madden. And for many people in the Midwest, especially in Chicago, Joe Madden would probably top that list and I say that despite there being plenty of things that Joe Madden is just awful at. Joe Madden has lost the Cubs games. He did it in 2016. He did it in the postseason in 2016. He did it in the World Series. He lost that team games with how he managed his bullpen, and he's continued to lose his team's his team games in 2017, not only with his awful, 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 
awful, atrocious bullpen management, but also with his commitment to his silly-ass lineups, his counterintuitive, his look-at-me being smart about baseball, batting Kyle Schwarber first for, what was it, two and a half months when he was batting 140 and on basing at a clip barely below 250? And he was still, day in and day out, leading off and getting the most amount of plate appearances of anybody on the team. Because I know that was the counter to the Joe Med. Oh, no, no, no. Listen, it's not stupid because the the leadoff guy only leads off like once a game. Like once he leads off, it's, it's incredibly improbable that the leadoff guy is actually going to lead off an inning. So it really doesn't matter once the leadoff, once the game begins and the guy leads off, it really doesn't matter whether he is quote in the leadoff position and that was used to excuse a bunch of Joe Madden silliness and I say wait wait, hold on no that's not the point because that wasn't the point of Joe Madden putting Kyle Schwarber in the leadoff position the reason Joe Madden the stated reason before the season that Joe Madden was going to put Kyle Schwarber in the leadoff spot was because when you bat leadoff when you are the leadoff hitter you get the lion's share of plate appearances. Once you go from one to two, it drops by 10%, the number of plate appearances you have. And then from two to three, it's like another nine or 10%. And on and on down the list, when you get to eight, we're talking about a difference in 20% of plate appearances batting eighth or ninth versus number one in the lineup day in and day out. And the reason that Joe Madden, Joe Madden was getting a pass from Cubs fans because they, they rationalized Kyle Schwarber leading off as oh well it's not it doesn't really matter because he's just he's leading off once a game and that's it but the point is is that when you back Kyle Schwarber lead off and Kyle Schwarber is bad you are giving a bad hitter the lion's share of plate appearances and for a while there Kyle Schwarber was leading the team in plate appearances despite making outs at a rate that led the team for worst he was the worst on the team at not making outs and he was getting the most plate appearances and Joe Madden stuck to that and he stuck to his guns and even when Kyle Schwarber was sent down and brought back there were a couple times where Madden was trying to kick him up up the lineup to okay number four now you're number two and uh, now you'll pinch hit for the leadoff guy because Joe Madden wants everybody to see how smart he is as a baseball mind and Cubs fans in particular but people in baseball altogether are willing to give Joe Madden a pass and this isn't this isn't about Joe Madden's lineup construction because even he had to drop Kyle Schwarber even he has has gotten a little bit better about his lineup construction at least in 2017 because overall his lineups were pretty good until he decided hey I'm going to show you my big fat baseball mind and I'm going to show you how good I can be at constructing this lineup by putting Kyle Schwarber in the leadoff position but the point is is that Joe Madden has a legion of followers, these fanboys, that are willing to excuse every single awful decision he makes to the point of rationalizing Joe Madden almost losing the Cubs Game 7 of the 2016 World Series by pulling Kyle Hendricks too early, by bringing in Araldis Chapman and trying to get a two-inning save out of him, and continually throughout the series and throughout the playoffs, bringing in Araldis Chapman in situations in which Araldis Chapman is not set to 
to excel by bringing him in in, in innings with runners already on. Something that he, he himself has says, hey, I don't like doing that, and something he is also shown to be pretty bad at. And Joe Madden has been getting a pass time and time and time and time again from Cubs fans and baseball fans in general. And it was on display on Sunday at Wrigley Field exactly how poor of a bullpen manager Joe Madden is because that loss, that 9-4 to loss, is on Joe Madden. That's on Joe Madden. That's one you can put squarely on Joe Madden because Joe Madden has, has time and again in 2016, again in the World Series, and this year he has shown you he doesn't know what he's doing in managing a bullpen. He tries to be, uh, you know, the hippy dippy. Oh, uh, don't let the pressure exceed the pleasure. And uh, I got my red, my nice red wine, my uh, Bordeaux, and I do my Binnie's Beverage Depot commercials. And oh, it's about you know who's ready to come in. And I love, um, I love CJ. I love Carl Edwards Jr. And I love Hector Rondon. And it's all about who's feeling it at that point. And he has shown you. He has shown everybody. Uh, for some reason people aren't paying attention, that he is not good at putting his best relievers in the position for them to exceed. As in, when, you're a, when you are a manager, one of, the, one of the few things that you have direct control over, you have absolute plenary authority over this facet of the game because it's you you have influence over pitch calling but you can you can have catchers change the signals you can have pitchers shake it off because they're not they don't want to throw that in that situation and you you would think that they have they have influence they have stronger influence over things like stealing hit and runs bunting but even then you'll have guys that are just given the green light it's like hey you get on base you can just go whenever you want and while that still is kind of on the manager, the onus shifts a little bit more towards the player because sometimes a player will just go rogue on you and think, "Oh, I'm just bunting here," or "I'm just uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to beat the shift in this way." And shifting is another thing that managers and bench coaches and vicariously managers have more control over, but. Uh, you're talking. You're still talking defense, and you're still talking players executing. However, when you are talking about bullpen management, when and where relievers come in the game, that is all on you. That is all on the manager because Carl Edwards Jr. can't just decide that he's coming into the game at this point. He doesn't get to make that decision. Wade Davis, despite being in the closer's role, is going to come in when the manager calls him. And we've never experienced, I don't think in baseball, experienced something where a player says, no, I'm not doing that. No, 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 coach. I'm, uh, what? I didn't see you. I didn't see you call. I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I talked to you on the bullpen phone, but I did not see you do the do the arm thing. I didn't, you know, I don't know. So I'm just going to continue warming up out here and uh, chewing on some bubblegum. But Wade Davis doesn't get to decide. He he tells me Joe Madden. He tells his managers, "Hey, this is where I'm comfortable. This is what I've done throughout my career. This is where I feel the best. This is where I believe I can perform at my peak." But at the end of the day, it's the manager. The manager fills out the lineup card, and the manager makes bullpen decisions. Those are the two facets of the game over which a manager has direct control. And Joe Madden as far as managing a bullpen, is absolutely awful. Let's set the stage here. 
Let's set the stage here. Carl Edwards Jr. in 2017 has a 6.80 fielding independent pitching. 6.80 fielding independent pitching in high leverage situations. He's thrown about uh, almost eight innings in high leverage situations this year. Paired with a 4.56 expected fielding independent pitching. That is solidly above average in terms of bad below well again it's it's above the league average meaning it's below average that's the kind of odd way we talk about those kinds of things his high leverage fielding independent pitching is almost double that total his total in medium leverage situations this year okay but that's just 2017 again we're talking about a smaller sample size again only eight innings of high leverage situations and so you're going to ask me hey john what about his career oh here we go for his career Edwards Jr. has a 4.72 fielding independent pitching in high leverage situations, a 3.73 fielding independent pitching in medium leverage, and 2.86 in low leverage situations. So Carl Carl Edwards Jr. is lights out in low leverage situations. He's pretty good in medium leverage situations. But once the leverage, the ability, the importance of of a run versus an out called leverage, because obviously if you're up eight runs, Giving up a run is not really that important. Getting an out is more important than getting giving up a run. You can you can give up a run or two runs and still oh okay we're pretty okay. But if you're if you are up only one run and you are later in the game, then obviously it becomes imperative that you get an out over getting a run, and that is a uh, slight bastardization of what the leverage index and and how leverage plays into bullpen usage. So for his career, once the leverage index starts to go to high, and there even is a very high leverage uh, classification, Carl Edwards Jr. is bad. Carl Edwards Jr. is not a high leverage pitcher. He should not be brought into situations where it is imperative that he get an out because but for his getting an out, the other team is probably going to score and either tie the game or take the lead. That's usually where, you're, where you will find a multitude or the highest leverage situations is up a run or tie ball game. Up a run or tie ball game is when you will see, especially as you progress throughout the game, when you start getting into the seventh and the eighth inning, obviously the ninth inning, the, this last scheduled inning of a ball game, the leverage index when you are up a run or tied will go up and up and up and up and up. And of course, it has to do with base and out situations as well. Edwards has appeared in almost so that's the stage. Okay, for for now, that's the stage. Carl Edwards Jr., suffice it to say, is a poor high leverage situation pitcher. However, that has not stopped Joe Madden from putting Edwards in almost 10% of the high leverage situations encountered by the Cubs this year. Despite him being an awful High-leverage situation pitcher, he has appeared in 10% of high-leverage situations encountered by the Cubs in 2017. And that is squarely on Joe Madden, because Joe Madden makes that decision. So now let's smash cut to Sunday. Okay, I'm at uh, I'm at Top Golf watching the game when he was brought into the game, waiting an hour and a half for a bay to hit some golf balls. For the love of God, uh, don't go uh, summer months to a to a Top Golf near you on uh, on Sundays. It's a great, tremendous experience, but if you want to wait like two hours to hit some damn golf balls, 
that's the place to go, I guess. Uh, but I got to see the this this implosion when he was brought into the game on Sunday, up one run late with one out and a man on first. This was the eighth inning. Edwards Jr. was brought in by Joe Madden. He, the Cubs were up four to three with one out and a man on first. That man was Bryce Harper. Edwards entered into a situation. Okay, the situation at that point had a leverage index of two point nine, which is right on the cusp of going from high to very high. So not only was this a high leverage situation, it was an almost an even higher leverage situation. And Carl Edwards Jr. is bad in high leverage situations, and so it stands to reason that in very high leverage situations, he's bad, bad, bad. And that's what happened. He proceeded to give up a double, then an intentional walk to load the bases, and then a grand slam to Matt Wieters. All because Joe Madden decided to bring in a pitcher who has demonstrated throughout his career this is nothing new with Carl Edwards Jr. This is not a closer who is faltering. This is not a, a an Andrew Miller type lights out every man, the, the now the prototype of modern bullpen usage all of a sudden falling off. This isn't that. This is Carl Edwards Jr. has been a solid middle middle leverage or medium leverage and lower pitcher, a very good medium leverage and lower relief pitcher for his career. And he has been bad for his career in high leverage situations. And Joe Madden decided to bring in Carl Edwards Jr. in a high leverage situation late in the game against one of the best teams in baseball with your divisional opponent a half game back with your divisional opponent a half game back and given the larger context of the national league as a whole needing to win the division and to maintain a divisional lead in order to make the playoffs because you're not the nl central is not producing a wild card team they're just not i i i'm let's i'd have to look at the uh, the standings here but i believe that the standings will show the Chicago Cubs are, let's see, the wild card spot, uh, Colorado and Arizona. Arizona holds the second wild card spot at 63 and 48. And so the Cubs are four games back in the loss column from the second wild card spot. So if you fall, if you fall out of the divisional lead, in part by losing games in August because your manager brings in a pitcher, a relief pitcher, who is awful in the exact situation that he is that he is entering into, losing those kinds of games will lose you the divisional lead. And with the larger NL context, you're not getting a wild card spot. The leader of the NL Central is four games back of the would be four games back of the second wild card. And this is not, again, this is not something new with Joe Madden either. This is not germane to 2017. Because in 2016, Madden ranked ahead of only then-Diamondbacks manager Chip Hale and sentient bag of baseball's Mike Matheny in correlating his best relievers with the highest leverage situations. Meaning, 
Madden was third worst in the league in 2016 in using his relievers when outs would be most beneficial to them. So if you have, if you ranked the Chicago Cubs bullpen in 2016 in their ability to get outs, whatever that is, if you want to go FIP, you want to go ERA or to limit run scoring, you want to talk about whip or you want to do it by war or Sierra or FIP minus or XFIP, whatever, their ability to limit run scoring as in the best guys at the top, the worst guys at limiting run scoring at the bottom, bottom, Joe Madden did not correlate his usage of the bullpen with using his best players in the highest leverage situations. The guy's best at getting outs in high leverage situations were not used all that often in high leverage situations. This has been something that if you take the blind if if fans were willing to just take the blinders off, they would see that there is a glaring glaring problem in Joe Madden's approach to baseball and it centers on his usage of the bullpen and it almost lost them game seven of the World Series it lost them countless games in 2017 and it lost them that game on Sunday because Joe Madden has a fixation with Carl Edwards Jr. and for whatever reason Joe Madden is either consciously blind or just negligently in uh, uh excuse me, uh, ignorant of how bad Carl Edwards Jr. is in high leverage situations because he continues to bring him into high leverage situations and he performs poorly to the tune of a 6.80 fielding and independent pitching and giving up a grand slam to Matt Wieters to surrender a lead. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about what's hot on calltothepen.com. This is the section of the show where, to close out the episode, we send you on your way to some of the great content currently featured on Fansided's Call to the Pen. Every single article talked about in this portion of the show is linked in the podcast post on calltothepen.com, so you can go click it and check it out and read all the stuff from our great contributors that uh, that we have to talk about. Contributor Brandon Nickel has an interesting column on the possibility of a Justin Verlander deal post-trade deadline. It was reported over the weekend that Verlander had cleared revocable waivers, presently the only way teams can make trades after the deadline, meaning Verlander was offered up to every other team in baseball and no team was willing to put in a claim. However, don't freak out about that. That's not the league saying, ah, we hate Justin Verlander, nobody cares about Justin Verlander. The reasoning for not putting in a claim can be varied and is indeed uh, special and dynamic to each and every baseball team. Some teams are just not in a position to care about Justin Verlander. The Phillies don't care about acquiring Justin Verlander, right? Imagine the the waiver the waiver wire comes through and the, the Phillies GM gets the notification and go, hey, Justin Verlander is available, put on waivers. What good would come from the Phillies adding Justin Verlander at this point in their 2017 campaign and their three and five and six year plans moving down the road. It just wouldn't matter all that much to the Phillies and and teams in that in a similar situation to bring in Verlander. Other teams don't need him. Other teams are packed with 
pitch starting pitching already, like the Dodgers. The Dodgers, I'm sure, in a video game sense, would love to add Justin Verlander, but you've already added you Darvish, and you've got Clayton Kershaw, and you've got Hyunjin Ryu, who just uh, threw seven innings and uh, of one-hit baseball, and you've got Rich Hill, and you don't really need Justin Verlander. You don't need to spend uh, uh, assets in the form of whether it be prospects or uh, fringe quadruple-A type players in order to try to acquire Justin Verlander. Yet others still don't believe they have the pieces to send back to get a deal done. These waivers are revocable after all, because if you put in a claim, the Dodgers can then just uh, give you Justin Verlander, or they can say, okay, let's get a deal done, and then if you don't have the horses to run with them, they'll say, oh no, we're just going to take him back off waivers. So we can't do that. No more deal for you. And others may be worried that the Tigers are looking to offload the $78 million in change still owed to Verlander because all the Tigers have to say to a claim is, all right, he's yours, here you go, and every single bit of that contract will carry over to the team making the claim. Case in point, White Sox fans will recall the harrowing waiver deal for Alex Rios made by then-GM Kenny Williams in 2009. In attempting to block a divisional rival from getting Rios, Williams misjudged the intention of the Blue Jays, who were more than happy to unload the remaining $47 million contract on the White Sox. Kenny Williams said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to grab Alex Rios and I'm going to keep the Tigers from getting him. Or was it the, no, I think it was the Indians. I'm going to keep the Indians from getting him because oh, it's a divisional rival and I'm going to try to keep him keep them from getting better so that when we face them in 2009 yeah so i'm just going to put in a claim to block it and i don't care you know my my demands will be unreasonable for alex rios and then they'll pull him back off revocable waivers and that will keep the indians from getting alex rios but what G, what kenny williams did not understand was that the blue jays were just looking to they had signed him to a near 80 million dollar contract and after one year of it they said oh god this is bad so let's get rid of him. And Kenny Kenny Williams was more than happy to play the foil because he put in a claim on Rios when they put him on waivers. And the Blue Jays just said, okay, here you go. Here he is. Have fun paying him. And that was, that was not a fun time to be a White Sox fan. Brandon also gives a glimmer of hope, okay, because there's a glimmer of hope. Justin Verlander not dealt at the deadline. I thought he was going to. There was a lot of talk about it. Uh, not dealt at the deadline and wondering will he get a chance um, to win a, to to compete for a World Series before he uh, or another World Series before he has to put before he has to call it quits because he's 36, 37 years old and uh, kind of a down year for him. And this is the kind of this is. This is the song that we see a lot with with aging starting pitchers. This is where you start to go, uh, the clock's ticking. John Lackey, similar situation. Not a, Obviously not as dominant as Verlander was for uh, for his peak years, but still in that realm of, all right, John, uh, your career might be close to being very much over. But there's a glimmer of hope. Could the Astros still be interested in Verlander who obviously was not dealt at the trade deadline despite a lot of steam rising from his corner of the hot stove. This is really interesting because the Astros were one team that was suspiciously silent at the deadline despite being in a position to make a conservative push for a playoff run, so much so that Dallas Keuchel said, uh, yeah, guys, uh, it'd be great if you could like trade somebody to get uh, some more starting pitching help because when if we're going to try to win a World Series here or at least make as deep a run into the playoffs as we can, we're going to 
need more pitching. That's just something that needs to get done, and that's what playoff good playoff teams. That's what world winning playoff World Series winning playoff teams do. Is that at the trade deadline they they identify deficiencies in their overall game and they seek to address them. Not necessarily via blockbuster trade, and I don't think Justin Verlander moving at this point in his career would be considered blockbuster, but they see things and they go, okay, well, we're deficient here and relief pitching is bad or, you know, we're, our high leverage uh, pitch, our high leverage relief pitching is, uh, could be a, a little bit better. So let's go out and find a good high leverage reliever to supplement what we already have and let's spend future assets to try to win now. And the Astros are very much in that window of let's spend future assets to acquire current ready-made MLB talent to make a deep run into the play. Playoffs. Brandon makes a great case for the Astros acquiring Verlander and for Verlander to obviously waive his no trade clause. Check out the details of what is possible on calltothepen.com. Brandon's column is linked in the post for this episode of the podcast. Elsewhere on Call to the Pen, contributor David Hill makes the case for the Brewers to put Josh Hader in the starting rotation as they try to make a run at the division, being only a half game back of the Chicago Cubs presently. The 23-year-old Hader has been electric in his relief role so far this year, amassing a 0.8 8-4 ERA and a 3.71 fielding independent pitching across 21 innings. But if the Brewers are going to catch and surpass the Cubs, they're going to need dominant starting pitching, and extending a dominant reliever into a starting spot is just the kind of bold move that could make a difference. Check out the rest of David's case for Josh Hader. Again, that column is linked in the post of this podcast on calltothepen.com. One worry about Hader. Here is one worry about Josh Hader. Again, 23 years old, and uh, has been very good in his relief role. The luck indicators, however, are a little bit uh, worrisome. He's got a 190 BABIP in 21 and a third innings so far this year. He's got a left on base percentage of 97.6%. Again, that's fantastic for a reliever. That's absolutely incredible. You want you want high left on base. If some if somebody gets on base, they are going to be left on base ninety nearly ninety eight percent of the time. Babip again. If somebody puts the ball in play, there is less than a twenty percent chance that it is not going to result in an out. And that's also with a ground ball percentage of thirty two point six percent. And here's the worrisome part: with a ground ball percentage of only thirty two point six percent and a home run to fly ball rate of four point three percent, it is possible that Josh Hader is running on a twenty one and a third inning run of luck because. All the all the luck metrics, every single one of them, the BABIP, the left on base percentage, and the home run to fly ball rate all indicate a pending regression. Will that regression come in the next series of observations, say in the next 10 innings, in the next 20 innings, in the next uh, 30 innings, if he makes it there by the end of the season, or will it come next season? Again, it's not necessarily guaranteed that he is going to regress. That's called the gambler's fallacy. But it is more likely now that in the next period of, of observation, we will see these these luck-infused metrics, BABIP, left on base percentage, and home run to fly ball rate, we will see them, it is more likely we will see them edge closer to what is league average, to what is 
uh, more expected in these in these categories of of baseball metrics. And the worry is is that if you start giving him more innings by by extending him into a starter's role again, he's appeared in 16 games and gone 21 innings, 21 and a third innings. So he is not afraid of throwing. He he obviously has some stamina somewhere. Um, if you start extending his innings, if you start giving him starts, and now he's going, you know, you, you got to stretch him out. So now, you know, you send him down for a week, let's say, and you know, he throws a couple, uh, a couple of starts for your AAA affiliate, and then he comes up and he goes four innings and five innings, and and then hopefully eventually six innings plus. You might get to that regression observation sooner by throwing him more in a starter's role. You may see him regress further quicker. And with somebody in such a position with a 190 BABIP, 98% left on base percentage, and 4.3% home run to fly ball rate, uh, he might be, that might be in trouble. And the, 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 the real indicator here is that despite a 0.84 ERA and a 3.71 FIP, that's really interesting because FIP is scaled to ERA. And when you see a huge difference between ERA and FIP, something's, something's amiss. It could be that he's just got the most dominant sinker ball we've ever seen. That could be it. But when you've got such a large, Large disparity, almost three whole runs. Again, FIP is scaled to ERA. And then something, okay, all right, that's an eyebrow raise. That's a worry. That's a, oh, and then his ex-FIP, his ex-FIP is 5.02, which virtually tell which virtually assures you that there's going to be some regression because out of everything else, ex-FIP, when FIP, differs so heavily from ERA and then XFIP differs so heavily from the FIP, there's there's going to be a large regression somewhere. Josh Hader is riding a big, huge standing wave of luck right now to the tune of if he had a league average home run to fly ball rate, his fielding independent independent pitching would be above five. And a fielding independent pitching above five is actually pretty bad. He's got a walk a strikeout rate of nearly eleven per nine innings and a a, a walk rate of nearly six per nine innings. So Again, this would be a bold move. It's not that it's not virtually assured that Hader will be bad as a starter, were he to be put into that role. But the Brewers should be on the lookout for a swift regression to the mean. Once you start throwing somebody in such a precarious luck position, more innings, way more innings, then you are likely to see a swift regression to the mean, and you're just going to have to roll with it because. Who did you, whom did you acquire at the deadline to otherwise help your starting pitching rotation? Because, sure, you might be able to swing a deal for Justin Verlander to make a push. Maybe. I doubt you'd get Justin Verlander to waive his no-trade clause to go to Milwaukee uh, ahead of Houston. But also, this is a move where it costs you nothing to throw Josh Hader as a starter, to stretch him out and try to make him a starter. It costs you nothing. No future assets because Hader can always you can always try to go back to him being a lights out reliever and this is the kind of bold move that if it works out it's going to be great if if Hader works out and he's even seventy five percent as dominant a starter as he currently is as a reliever we're talking about results oriented now if he's even seventy five percent of what he was as a reliever as a starter the the Brewers are going to be in contention all the way up until the final game of the season for the NL Central 
But if he regresses swiftly and quickly and then you're throwing him more innings and he has a near five FIP as a starter, you just shot yourself in the foot and you've turned an incredibly lucky run uh, throughout most of the summer for the Milwaukee Brewers and you've turned it into nothing. So this is a bold move. And really, uh, David makes a great case that it's really the only move. All right, that'll wrap up this episode of the flagship podcast of Call to the Pen. Be sure to visit calltothepen.com every single day for great content from all of our contributors. You can follow me on Twitter at John's Voices and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a beat. New episodes Monday and Wednesday, weather permitting. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. I'm out. Bye.